Well, do turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 58. If you don't have a Bible with you, we now have them in the pews in front of you, uh, so you can find one in the rack there. Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 uh, through 68. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. As Jesus was being seized in that garden of Gethsemane, he said to his disciples and to the cohort of soldiers who were there to arrest him, he said, all of this has taken place so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I want you to remember that Jesus actually had no need to surrender to them. As the messianic king, he testified, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he would at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I could say the word and my father would send 72,000 angels. But if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled. You see, Jesus voluntarily hands himself over to these perverse and wicked men because Jesus is self-consciously fulfilling the scriptures. 
He self-consciously goes as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He is self-aware that he is the suffering servant of the Lord who gives his life as a ransom for many. And so among the scriptures that must be fulfilled are those that are very familiar to us. Like Isaiah 53, where Isaiah describes the suffering servant whose life is going to be exchanged for a people who are like wandering sheep. Like sheep who are constantly wandering away from their shepherd, constantly getting into trouble, constantly going their own way. The Lord is going to give this suffering servant in their place. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The servant of the Lord becomes like a sheep for wandering sheep. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, that is being led to the slaughter, he will not open his mouth. I heard an OPC pastor friend of mine recount a story from his time in Ireland and a conversation that he had when he visited a farm there with an Irish shepherd. And it happened to be on a day when they were slaughtering some of the flock. And the shepherd pointed to the uncanny silence of the slaughterhouse. Uh, He said that if it were the hogs, it would be completely different. The squealing is so loud that you can't stand it. You have to wear ear protection. But with the sheep, it was completely different. In fact, he said with the sheep, the men would have to hold the muzzle of the sheep before they cut their throats Not because they would cry out, but because they would often lick the hand of the slaughtermen. It's that kind of quiet, harmless image that we are meant to hear behind the trial of Jesus today. That Jesus, holy and harmless, is like a lamb being led to the slaughter, and yet he opens not his mouth. And so even as we consider this account today, I want us to see uh, in this trial of Christ that actually, I think, three trials are happening. Uh, First, there is the obvious trial of Christ. As Jesus stands before the high priest and before the Jewish rulers called the Sanhedrin. But secondly, I also want you to see that in this trial of Christ, there is a very real sense in which Caiaphas himself, the high priest is on trial before Jesus, the true high priest. And then finally, I want us to see that in this trial of Christ and trial of Caiaphas, we are on trial, that there is a trial of Christians. And so our points today are very simply the trial of Christ, the trial of Caiaphas, and the trial of Christians. The trial of Christ begins in verse 57 as those who have seized him have led him to Caiaphas's uh, palace, uh, where the high priest is and the scribes and elders have gathered, and Peter's following at a distance, and he follows as far as the courtyard of the high priest, 
and he goes in and he, he sits among the guards and he's, he's there to see the end, to see what will become of Jesus, his friend. Uh, we're going to spend a good deal of time considering Peter next week. For, for now, just note that he's followed along at a distance. While all of the other disciples have scattered, uh, while they are hiding in fear, Peter has at least braved the night. Uh, and he has come, and he has followed to see what the outcome will be. And, and what is it that Peter witnesses but a complete and total travesty of justice? As we consider the trial of Jesus here, what should strike us about this trial is all of the indignities and the injustices that abound here. Now, some of those injustices are obvious. Others are only obvious if you're familiar with Jewish law. And many Jewish commentaries and and Christian commentaries have... uh, written about the peculiarities of this trial, the illegalities of this trial. Uh, Just to give you one example, Jewish law forbid that you would conduct a trial in the cover of darkness. In the interest of justice, trials were to be carried out in the full light of day, but here Jesus is being tried in the middle of the night. And there are several illegalities about this trial, But there is an injustice just on the face of it all, and it's that injustice that seems to be uh, what the scriptures focus on. They don't actually say much about any of these illegalities. But take, for example, the fact that Jesus is arrested without cause. What crime has Jesus committed? That he should be bound and seized. What has he done that is deserving of arrest? He's done nothing at all. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He's without sin in every respect. Not only has he not transgressed God's law in any way, he's been perfectly and positively obedient to God's law. He's truly righteous, and yet he's treated as a criminal. Now, the reality is that Jesus was never going to get a fair trial. The outcome of this trial has already been determined. You remember back at the beginning of this chapter, what we read? Uh, Back in verse 3 of chapter 26, that the chief priests and the elders of the people had gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Not only had they already plotted his arrest, not only had they already determined his sentence that they should put him to death, but they had even worked out all of the timing of it so that it would occur in a way that would bring about the the least bit of attention. As one author put it, a court that begins with a predetermined outcome is no court of justice. Justice requires that judges weigh evidence honestly, without prejudice, if they are going to arrive at a just judgment. But in the case of Jesus, uh, even as they gather, they not only come with a prejudice against him, they come with a resolved determination that they are going to put him to death. 
Now, how do you do that? How do you get to a sentence of condemnation in the trial of someone who's committed no crime whatsoever? Well, you have to create a crime. You have to conjure something up. And how do you do that? Well, you have to find false witnesses. And so that's exactly what they do. They go and they seek out false witnesses. Verse 59 tells us, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false witnesses, false testimony against Jesus, so that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. What is the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness. What did we just hear about from Pastor Crawford and the reading of the law that God hates? Bearing false witness. God specifically commands and forbids that we do not bear false witness or testimony, that we are not prejudicial to the truth and injurious of the good name of our neighbors, as the catechism puts it, the shorter catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this, and I I particularly like this. It asks, what is God's will for me in the Ninth Commandment? And it says that I never give false testimony against anyone. That I never twist anyone's words, nor gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. And then it positively says, and that I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. People should have been rising to defend the reputation and honor of Jesus, but instead they are rising to lie about him and to slander him and to twist his words. And all the while, Jesus is standing there silent. Now there's a problem for the Sanhedrin. There's a problem for Caiaphas. You see, the law required that no one could be convicted except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so despite the fact that they are receiving and actively seeking uh, false reports, apparently they cannot find any that are in agreement. Though many false witnesses have come forward. Until finally, (laughs) right? Until at last, they get two witnesses who will agree on something. Two who, who say that they heard this man say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, personally, I, I think this is a bit rich. On the one hand, they are more than willing to receive false testimony and actively seek it out. And on the other hand, they are sticklers for this legal requirement that there be two or three witnesses. They can completely wholesale abandon the law of God on one hand, and on the other hand, they must have these two witnesses. After all, everybody knows the requirement for two or three witnesses. 
And so it's, it's like they put on this facade of godliness and obedience to the law in order to cloak all of their injustice. And it's wicked. But it's not uncommon. How many times are we guilty of this same sort of ruse where we sort of cloak our injustice in godliness? The Heidelberg Catechism mentions gossip in its answer on the Ninth Commandment. Since we're talking about bearing false witness, how many times have you entertained gossip or been a part of gossip under the guise of loving concern? I don't know if I should tell you this, but did you hear about Pastor Joel? Did you hear about so-and-so? I'm just really concerned about them. I don't say that because anyone has been gossiping about me. I just didn't want to call anyone else out. But we do this kind of thing, don't we? Where we sort of cloak our injustice in a veil of righteousness. Instead of going to that person with our concern, we, we spread our concern abroad in a way that may be destructive to their good name and reputation. That's the kind of thing that is going on here under the cloak of godliness they entertain the most ungodly false testimony. And they hear lie after lie after lie after lie until finally they can get two witnesses to agree. But even when they get two to agree, apparently they do not press the men very much about the accuracy of their statement. After all, Jesus never said what they say he said. They are doing as the Heidelberg Catechism says. They are twisting his words. He didn't say, I will destroy the temple of God. He said, you destroy the temple of God, and I will raise it up. You Jews. Because he was speaking about the temple of his body. And that's when Caiaphas stands up and he says, have you no answer to make? This is sacrilege, right? That you would destroy the temple of God. Uh, Give an answer to what these men testify against you. And yet Jesus remains silent. I think Caiaphas is pressing to get something out of Jesus. Because in spite of the fact that they finally have two witnesses who are willing to testify against him, Caiaphas knows it's not enough even if what they allege him to have said was completely true, even if it wasn't a twisting of his words, Caiaphas knows it's not enough to condemn him to death. It may have been enough for the Sanhedrin, for the the Jewish authorities, but the Jews lived under the occupation of the Romans. And the Romans had taken away the power of capital punishment from the Jews. And so the only way for the Jews to condemn someone to death was to deliver them over to the Roman authorities and to persuade the Roman authorities that these charges were deserving of death. And these charges are simply not going to cut it. Caiaphas needs to get something more, but Jesus won't give it. He remains silent. 
He doesn't defend himself. I mean, what would you do? I didn't say that. They're twisting my words. He just remains silent. He takes it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this enrages Caiaphas. And so in frustration and in another act of illegality, he puts Jesus under an oath to testify against himself. He says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, why does Caiaphas ask this particular question? Why does he want Jesus to say that he is the Christ? Because who is the Christ? The Christ is the Messiah. The Christ is the King. The Christ is the Son of God and the Son of David. The Christ is the one who is going to rule his enemies with a rod of iron, who is going to establish his rule and reign over the nations of the earth, who is going to bring deliverance to God's people by striking down their enemies and oppressors. And so while the Romans might not care about these couple of witnesses and what they purport Jesus to have said about the temple, they do care about insurrectionist pretender kings. And the Romans were very swift to put down insurrection. They were very swift to put down riots. The Roman authorities did not take these things lightly. Think of the way that the puppet king, Herod, responded when the Magi came to him and said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? What does he do? He immediately goes on this slaughter of the innocents, killing all the children under the age of two, just to ensure that he will have no political rival. And so the reason Caiaphas is going on this full court press against Jesus, who now being under oath, because he wants him to admit that he is the Messiah. And Jesus must respond. But what can he say? Unless he's willing to lie, not likely, unless he's willing to lie, he's condemning himself. Any answer other than no will be a death sentence. And so Caiaphas puts him under an oath so that he will condemn himself with his words. But even as he sits in judgment over Jesus, Jesus sits in judgment over him. And I think we hear that in the response of our Lord. And so secondly, let's consider the trial of Caiaphas. Being under oath, Jesus responds, you have said so. Now, if you were the one on trial, again, I'd ask you, how would you want to respond? Boy, I know how I would want to respond. I would want to take this occasion to lay into Caiaphas, uh, to, to just vent all of my righteous indignation and rage at him for all of this injustice. And Jesus rightly could in true righteous indignation. 
But Jesus' answer exhibits remarkable restraint. And yet, there's something powerful going on in these words. We know from Mark's gospel that Jesus also answered by saying, I am. Right? That he answered affirmatively in such a way that he unmistakably identified himself with Israel's God, with Yahweh, who revealed himself as I am. And Caiaphas says, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And Jesus says, ego me, I am. But Matthew doesn't include that statement. He simply includes what he says next. It is as you say. Now, it's a positive reply, isn't it? It is as you say. And they take it as such because they rush to condemn him. But I do think something more profound is going on here. I I got this insight from a friend of mine who notes that Jesus is acting like a covenant prosecutor here, where the great high priest is prosecuting Caiaphas, even as Caiaphas is pretending to prosecute Jesus. What did Jesus say earlier in this gospel? He said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And here, Jesus says to Caiaphas, you have said so. You have identified me as the Messiah of God, as the Son of God, and yet you're rejecting me. You have said it. Jesus is making certain that Caiaphas will be held accountable for these words. And I think that judgment aspect is clear from what Jesus says next. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Just as he did in Matthew 24, where he spoke about the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, Jesus is once again alluding to Daniel 7, 13 through 14, to that great prophecy about the Messiah. Again, this is happening so that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Daniel 7 says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man? He is the one who sits at God's right hand. He is the one to whom God has committed dominion and judgment over all peoples and nations. He is the one whose kingdom will not be destroyed. He is the judge of the whole earth. And though he appears in weakness before Caiaphas, he will be seen in his glory. Here Jesus is without any reservation acknowledging that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, and that the kings of the earth have gathered against the Lord and against his anointed, and they should be warned. They should kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and they perish in the way. We're reminded that the rulers of this earth, whether religious or civil, are all ultimately accountable to God and will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And I think we get a preview of that here in Jesus' response to Caiaphas. 
But does Caiaphas kiss the son? No. Instead, in this completely hypocritical display of righteous indignation, he pretends to be scandalized, absolutely scandalized by what Christ has said. He tears his robes and he cries out, Blasphemy! What further witnesses do we need? And then he calls on the Sanhedrin to make a judgment and to join him in his judgment. You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they join him. He deserves death. And then they add to the many injustices so many more indignities. Far from using their lips to kiss the sun, they use their lips to spit in his face. They struck him. That term often refers to the use of a club. They slapped him. And they mocked him and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? I actually think that's a very good question. Who is it that strikes him? And I want to use that question to transition us to this final point. Because as Jesus stands on trial, he stands there for us. Right? He goes as our substitute. If he opens not his mouth, it's because before God's bar of justice, every mouth must be stopped and the whole world must be held accountable. Who is it that strikes you? One of our fathers in the faith, Johann Hermann, answers the question well in the hymn we sang last week. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus. I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. I think it's easy for us to look at the injustices and the indignities of this trial and to respond with a sort of hypocritical, holier-than-thou righteous indignation against the Jewish people. We would never have done that. We would never have been a part of that. That is until we remember that Jesus is actually there for us. That the reason he is led to the slaughter is for sheep who loved to wander. That he is submitting himself to the judgment that is due for our sins, sins that look an awful lot like the sins of Caiaphas. Cloaking injustice in outward righteousness, pretending outrage at whatever seems more evil than whatever evil we ourselves are perpetrating. We do this all the time. And all the while, Jesus stands there, silently enduring it, his face battered and swelling from the beatings, blood and sweat mingling down his bruised cheeks. And yet he stands there, taking the blows, taking the insults. He stands there to drink the cup of God's wrath, to do what we could not do, to make satisfaction for sins. We could not make satisfaction for sins. 
We could not propitiate the wrath of God. Uh, One preacher asks us to imagine imagine a great ocean filled with the wrath of God. An ocean that stretches farther than you can see. As deep as the Mariana Trench. And now imagine that that ocean filled with the wrath due for our sins. Imagine that we are made to drink it cup after cup after cup. Every cup more horrific than the next. If you tried to drink the ocean one cup at a time, hour upon hour, week after week, year after year, century after century, you would not even see the horizon line change. Your finite capacity cannot satisfy the depths of God's righteous and holy indignation against sin. And yet that is what Jesus does. Because Jesus, in his infinite capacity as the God-man, drinks this ocean of God's wrath in one moment. He bears in his body our sins, and he does it because of the great love with which he loves us. That even while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. And he makes such a complete and full satisfaction that there is actually nothing left to be suffered There is no more cup to drink. At least no more cup of wrath. There is a cup that God puts into your hands. But it's that cup of blessing that we bless, that reminds us that Jesus has made this full and final satisfaction for sins. We who have come to him in faith and have trusted in him for salvation are not liable to the least amount of punishment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done in Christ what we could not do. In this trial of Christ, Christ is taking our guilt and condemnation. He has, as the prophet says, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He is stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace is what we have. And how can we not then love him more and better? How can we not then just desire to give ourselves back to him who gave himself for us? How can we not uh, want to sing as that hymn writer continues, Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee. Think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you stood trial for us and in our place, that all of the injustices and the indignities that were due to us for our sins, you yourself bore in your body. 
uh, and that even while you were reviled, you did not revile in return. You did not open your mouth, but were entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. That like a lamb led to the slaughter, you opened not your mouth. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, you opened not your mouth, and you did it for us. And so, Lord, we pray that now we might open up our mouths and sing your praise, that we might adore you and give ourselves back in thanksgiving, and that we might open our mouths to receive bread and wine, these tokens of your grace to us. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and ask that you would work this gospel word into our hearts, that it might be truly transformative, that we might respond in love and adoration and thanksgiving. And we say it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the way this hymn gathers together all of these themes. Uh, But in this last verse, um, it it speaks of these pledges that we receive, right? Um, That as we wait for Christ, our souls are refreshed by these tokens that he gives us. And indeed, that is because of what these tokens represent. They represent and signify the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that are given for us, Uh, that he did not hold anything back, right? He gave himself wholly and completely to the will of his Father and for us. He gave his face to be spit upon, he gave his cheek uh, to be struck, and he did it for us and remained silent, entrusting himself to his Father And now he gives these gifts to us as tokens that we might remember all that he has done, that he has satisfied the full measure of God's wrath that is pictured here, so that as they come to us, there is no wrath in this cup. There is no wrath in this bread. There is only grace. There is only mercy. There is only the pledge of God's love and favor and kindness. And that is what refreshes our souls. Right? That as we partake of these things, we are nourished in the inner man by the grace of God. And so as these tokens come to you today, they come to you from the hand of Christ and receive them as pledges of his grace. He is not angry at you today. However you feel, like your week has gone, however you have struggled, if you are coming in faith and repentance to this meal, then know that God looks upon you with favor in his Son, and he pours out his grace. Now, this meal is also, at the same time, a warning, isn't it? Because it is a picture of God's wrath. It is a picture of that which is due to sinners who don't come in faith and repentance. It is a picture of what belongs to Caiaphas and to the Sanhedrin, to those who will stand judged by Christ on that final day for rejecting him. If that is you, don't come to this table. But repent. Turn from your sins. Run to Christ. And find that he drinks that cup of wrath for you. As we come to this table then today, let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart now for this holy use. Lord, we thank you for giving us bread and wine, for giving us these sensible signs by which we might remember that you are gracious and good and kind to us, 
that there is nothing of your wrath here today, but there is only your mercy to uh, sinners who are trusting in you. And Lord, even, even when you cut us down, even when you discipline us, it is a grace to us. And so, Lord, help us to receive these as worthy partakers in the manner in which we should with faith and repentance, uh, loving and trusting and adoring you. And we say it in Jesus' name. Amen.